One of the themes that's going to tie these lectures together are links between utopianism and science. Two things which I think on the face of it might seem utterly different, utterly contradictory in fact. Utopianism we tend to associate with airy-fairy schemes, unrealistic plans and projects, having your head in the clouds. By contrast, science has its feet as firmly on the ground as anything very much rooted in facts and evidence and proof. But I hope that by drawing out the way these two things link, and they link at gardens particularly, it'll help us see both of them rather differently than perhaps those stereotypes would suggest. The, the story starts really in Oxford, in the Botanic Gardens there, founded in 1621, the first botanic gardens in Britain. And I've called the first section God, King and Vegetables because I want to tease out some of the relations between the natural order uh, and the plant kingdom um, and the way that Oxford thought about these things. And I'm going to talk in particular about this book, Robert Sharrock's History of the Propagation and Improvement of Vegetables by the Concurrence of Art and Nature. And again, there's another contrast, art artifice, the artificial, the things people do, uh, and the natural world. The relationship between those two things is a theme that's going to come up again and again over these lectures. The book was published, as you can see there, in 1660. And it's quite a curious book when you actually start to read it. It has some quite unexpected things in it. First of all, it's a very practical guide to all kinds of gardens. So it has a tip here showing you how uh, all the different kinds of grafts and inoculations that you can do to graft two kinds of trees together uh, to improve varieties and things like that. Obviously, you're not supposed to do all of that to the one tree. This poor one looks rather tortured. This is just an illustration of all the possible grafts that you could make. And alongside that, Sharrick has lots of uh, practical tips for vines. It is a proverb, make your vine poor and it will make you rich. The fewer principal stems are left, the more it bears. Okay, so if you take nothing else away from tonight, you've got a useful tip about growing vines here. Uh, and alongside this, there are uh, tips on which kind of plants like the shade, which ones like the damp soil, uh, which ones need sunshine, and so on. So it seems rather familiar. It's a gardening manual. But when we start to look at it more closely, it has some rather unexpected qualities. For example, he argues uh, that politicians will claim that it is as important to defend a place already gotten and to improve it for the benefit of the prince and inhabitants as it was at the first to arrive at the conquest. And these images of conquest and colonization actually run through gardening rather a lot. He goes on to explain that this is alike true in the gardener's province. It is no easy thing with him to raise a stock of choice plants by the several ways of propagation above mentioned and as hard to preserve them being propagated from destruction by foreign and intestine internal violence. I'm sure any of us who've made even the kind of pitiful attempts at gardening that I've made will sympathize with the difficulty of keeping your plants alive. But what's this about princes and conquests and internal violence? Of course, we have to remember the context in which this is written and the time that it's written. So, 1649, uh, King Charles I is executed. Here he is just a couple of minutes after thinking, was proroguing Parliament a good idea? Um, this is a huge shock to the people of England. Whatever they stood to cut off the sacred head of the king, God's anointed on earth, is a gross violation, not merely of the political order, but of the divine order. 
a kind of sacrilege, a blasphemy in many people's eyes. And many people would have claimed that the terrors and horrors that have beset England during the years of the civil wars and the years of what is sometimes called the Interregnum, the Republic, the Cromwell's rule, that all of that happened because God was angry with the English for violating the natural order. But by 1660, by the time Sharrock is writing his book, all is well again. Charles II is back on the throne. The natural, the divine order has been restored. The king is back uh, on his throne. And that idea of a natural order where the, uh, the king is kind of God's anointed on earth, uh, the macrocosm of the universe is reflected in the microcosm of the kingdom, uh, is one of the ideas that runs actually through the garden and through the links that I want to make. So Sharrock himself is a Church of England clergyman. Uh, you actually have to be an ordained clergyman to be a fellow at an Oxford or Cambridge college then and for many, many years afterwards. And he writes at the end of his treatise, and he will end with one or two choice observations on the wise and good providence of God, which may be seen in the admirable make of vegetables and fitness to their ends. Uh, and he explores the ways in which nature seems uh, not merely to be well designed, but to be designed with benevolence in mind. It's not just the existence of God, but the wisdom of God, the goodness of God that we can find if we study nature. Why is the ground in woods covered with moss, but that nature intended it as a preservation to seeds fallen upon the turf in the violence of winter frosts? And Sharrock is tapping into a tradition which is quite new at this time, but is going to become really very dominant in English natural history uh, for the next couple of hundred years, a tradition known as natural theology, this idea that we study nature, we're studying God's handiwork, we're learning to know God through it. Um, Contemporary with him, John Ray is preaching at Cambridge, where they also, of course, have a university. Um, and uh, he wrote this famous book, The Wisdom of God Manifested in the Works of the Creation, based on sermons that he gave in the 1660s, at exactly the same time that Sharrock is at work in Oxford. Ray is preaching these same ideas. The benevolence of God, the wisdom of God, is there for everyone to see when they study nature and the way that it works. And as I said, that's a tradition that's going to be particularly strong in England over the next couple of centuries. Now, if we come back to the Oxford Garden itself, where Sharrock would have walked regularly, he knew the curator well, uh, and he studied the plants there very closely, he said, it is no unusual theme to treat of the admirable handsomeness and beauty of the composure of diverse vegetables. It would be rather an unusual thing in a modern gardening manual, but you begin to get a sense of the very different context which is at work here. And he goes on to say that every plant shall seem to have more of mathematical art than the knot wherein it is set. So one of the things he argues is that things like the appearance of leaves, stems, or flowers on a plant is not random or accidental. There is a mathematical precision to the growth of plants, to the shape of flowers, to all the things we study. This is one of the ways we know that God designed them, because of the perfection of their design and the mathematical perfection of it. The knot wherein it is set of course, refers to the garden itself. This is a Jacobean knot garden. This kind of garden is very popular in Elizabethan and Jacobean times. This one, of course, has been beautifully restored um, by the National Trust, I think. Uh, but this is a 16th century gardener's manual, The Gardener's Labyrinth by Thomas Hill. And you can see these fantastically intricate patterns, geometric, mathematical. And it's worth remembering that for the Elizabethans and Jacobeans, a garden was the exact opposite of nature. What made it a garden was that nature had been excluded. You built a wall around it, and you kept 
wild beasts and foul weather and bandits and all the other things that were part of the natural world outside the wall. And inside, you had a vision of order, of mathematical perfection. That's what a garden was, very different to the kind of idea of a garden that we have uh, in the Romantic era from the 18th century onwards. And the idea that a garden represented not merely an, uh, a divine order, but also uh, a royal order is a very important one. This is Het Lowe, beautiful palace in the Netherlands. Uh, it was owned by a gentleman called William of Orange, stadtholder of the Netherlands at this point, who features, of course, in our story because he becomes William of England, William and Mary take over the throne after Mary's dad, James II, has unfortunately revealed himself to be a bit too Catholic for the majority of English tastes. Uh, and his daughters had the common sense to marry a Protestant and is brought in in what is known by historians as the Glorious Revolution to take over the throne virtually without bloodshed uh, and keep uh, the conflicts that have been tearing England apart uh, from reoccurring. So the idea of a garden as symbolizing a divine and a natural and a royal order all in one is something that runs through these decades very clearly. It's interesting as well that Sharrock publishes not merely on gardening, but also on law. This is his 1660 book on duties according to the law of nature. And this is a very rich idea at the time that uh, there is, as it were, a place for everything and everybody within this natural and divine order. Our obligations, our duties as members of the Commonwealth, as subjects to the King, as subjects of God, are all related into this lovely hierarchical pattern where we know our place, we know what we are obliged to do, we know what God and the King and the order of nature wants of us. It's interesting that, of course, if you step outside that order, you could turn to his later book, The Judgments or Legal Censorship of Various Types of incontinence. Uh, and you can see some of the uh, choice options you've got here. Adultery, polygamy, fornication, uh, incest, and so forth. And um, um, peccatis contra naturum, sins against nature. And of course, by sins against nature, what he primarily has in mind is homosexuality. And one of the reasons why I think over the course of these lectures I'm going to question the idea that the natural is always good is by thinking about what people have done with the word unnatural, the way that they have condemned uh, and persecuted other people for their choices by saying this is against nature. It's one of the reasons why I think the notion that we just accept natural means good is something that we really want to question. So, let's think about monsters and a multitude of monstrous untruths. Um, Sharrock says uh, in his book that before writing his history, I gave myself the trouble to run over with my eye all books I could procure on these subjects. I love this phrase. I'm going to use this with my students in future. Give yourself the trouble to run over with your eye all books you can procure before you hand in your essay next time. Um, and he's very, very contemptuous of the things that he's read. Many of these books contained a multitude of monstrous untruths and prodigies of lies in both Latin and English, old and new writers, worse in their kind than the stories in Sir John Mandeville's travels. Mandeville was the fictitious author of a 14th century volume of fabulous tales about men with no heads and their faces and their chests and all kinds of other monstrous, ridiculous things. And what Sherrick is saying is that far too many people who claim to write about gardens have simply read a bunch of books 
a bunch of books written by people who've got all their information from other books that they've read. Nobody has actually checked any of these things. They just keep repeating the same stories, generation upon generation, author upon author, book to book. Uh, and this isn't getting us anywhere in terms of actually finding out how to grow things. Um, he said that earlier garden books could not be more ridiculously removed, not only from truth, but from any semblance thereof. So he really, really doesn't like these old books. Um, so the question, of course, we have to ask is why would we trust his book, given that all the others have been proven so unsatisfactory? He explained, I have tried diverse of the experiments proposed. For example, can you procure early germination by soaking the seeds in milk, or as he puts it, strong muck water? He can give the reader this fruit of my pains, that without any further trial, he may, from my experience, be ascertained that the advantage in acceleration is exceeding inconsiderable by any of these means. Don't waste your time with the milk or the muck water. It doesn't make a difference. And perhaps the key word on that very verbose title page is written according to observations made from experience and practice. That's what Sharrock's doing in the Oxford Botanic Garden. He's trying these things for himself. He's actually experimenting and seeing which of the various old husband's tales that have been perpetrated from book to book over the centuries actually has any use to it. That, of course, is a profound change in the way that people go about looking for knowledge. For a great many centuries prior to this, a great many people have turned to old books for knowledge. And something different is afoot at this point. It's therefore not surprising to find that he dedicates the book to his friend, the Honourable Robert Boyle, the most worthy patron of true honour and learned promoter of true science. Now, Boyle, of course, is an English natural philosopher, uh, what we would now call a scientist, but that word is not used before the 20th century. And he's a major figure in what's called the scientific revolution. The scientific revolution comes with scare quotes because, as with almost every revolution in history, no sooner has one historian coined it than another historian comes along and says there was no such thing. And we now accept that there was a, it's a very vexed term. It's very complicated to explain why that is. I'm just going to leave the scare quotes there and leave that topic for you to follow up on your own. But there is something, even if we don't call it a revolution, there is something interesting going on here in the way people are thinking about nature and how we can actually get knowledge of nature. Now, what Boyle is particularly famous for is the experiments that he did and published using what he calls his air pump. He publishes these in exactly the same year, 1660, same year as Sharrock's book, New Experiments, Physico-Mechanical, Touching the Spring of the Air and Its Effects. The spring of the air is what we would now call air pressure. And what Boyle is doing in this book, amongst many other things, is disputing Aristotle's claim, the greatest of all philosophers, that nature abhors a vacuum. There are no vacuums, according to Aristotle. Boyle says, yes, there are. You build one of these and you get one. It's not really that difficult. And once you've done it, you can do all kinds of experiments. And the point of this diagram, with all the bits and pieces, is you could do this yourself if you wanted to. All you'd need is a large number of highly trained, skilled, uh, um, probably underpaid and certainly unacknowledged artisans to build it for you. Um, but once they've done it, you can do this for yourself and you can check that what Boyle tells you is in fact true. And that is a new kind of knowledge claim. That's one of the things we would point to when we say, okay, there may not have been a scientific revolution, certainly not the scientific revolution, but there's something very interesting going on in the 17th century as people start to ask new kinds of questions and start to think about new kinds of ways of answering them. 
It's interesting also that uh, Charak actually helps translate Boyle's books into Latin. Boyle himself writes only in English, and it's almost certain that Boyle financed the publication of Charak's history. So these two are really good mates, um, and they spent a lot of time together in, in Oxford. So Charak's book comes right out of the heart of this scientific revolution. They're both members of what is sometimes called the Invisible College, a group of learned gentlemen who met at Boyle's lodgings in Oxford, several of whom are going to go on to found the Royal Society. Their first meeting was, there's a coincidence, at Gresham College, London. Um, in uh, 1660, the same year, everything happens in 1660, it seems. Um, and Christopher Wren, who's pictured here, who was the professor of astronomy, uh, gave a lecture on that occasion. And yes, that is the same Christopher Wren who built St. Paul's in his idle moments when he wasn't lecturing on astronomy. Quite an astonishing uh, figure, even by the standards of those days. Um, and uh, lots of powerful and important people were there. So William Brownker, the gentleman who's pictured on the left in this picture, who had shared King Charles's exile in France and therefore was a very safe pair of hands, very politically reputable person to have associated with your society, he was there um, at this lecture. So royal patronage, royal favour is there from the beginning. This is the frontispiece from Thomas Spratt's History of the Royal Society, 1667, the Royal Society had only been around seven years, so there wasn't a lot of history to actually uh, purvey at this point. This is really a kind of propaganda piece. It's a manifesto for what the Royal Society is going to do. Uh, and Charles is there in the centre of it, the royal benefactor who gives his name to it. Sadly, for the gentlemen of the Royal Society, he doesn't give them any money. The King of France, dreadful tyrant that he was, gave his Royal Academy lots of money to do experiments, even paid his, uh, his academicians a salary. Uh, but the British in time and on fashion make a virtue of necessity and are very proud of their independence uh, from patronage, and so they scrape by on their own money without having any from the king. I'll come back to the gentleman on the right in a second. This is the motto of the Royal Society from the top of that frontispiece, nullius in verba, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with. It basically means take no man's word. You have to see things for yourself. You have to witness them. You can't just go back to the old authors, read what Aristotle says, and trust it. This is the new knowledge embodied in a single phrase. Now, one of the many fascinating figures associated uh, with the Royal Society, with Gresham in the early days, is its professor of geometry, Robert Hooke. Um, this is a lovely uh, painting by Richard Greer, a modern depiction of him. You'll see another version of it over there. Um, uh, the story goes that they, we don't have any contemporary representations of Hooke um, because he, Sir Isaac Newton didn't like him and uh, um, Hooke predeceased him and Newton had all the images destroyed in a fit of pique. I have no idea if that's actually true. But we certainly don't have any pictures of Hooke. Hooke is an extraordinary polymath, uh, I think, again, even by 17th century standards. The same year, uh, that he becomes professor of geometry, he publishes this amazing book, The Micrographia. He has read about uh, Anthony van Leeuwenhoek's uh, first microscopes that have been built in Holland, uh, and rather like Galileo, who read descriptions of the telescope, built himself one and put it to work. Hook does the same and starts making these extraordinary observations, as he puts it there, of minute bodies. Um, and this book is full of the most astonishing images. We are so used to seeing uh, incredible kind of electron microscope photos of the most minute and unimaginable things. It's very hard to recover the astonishment that must have greeted people when they first saw this, a flea uh, massively enlarged, looking uh, with his, his scales looking like the plates of a suit of armour, an extraordinary image of the minute world. And Hooke says of this, every considerable improvement of telescopes or microscopes 
produces new worlds and terra incognitas, unknown lands, to our view. So there's a couple of things going on here. There's that macrocosm-microcosm analogy being made again. What we see above us in the heavens with the telescope, new worlds, new planets, the surface of the moon revealed in new detail, the same thing is going on under the microscope. Tiny worlds, but as equally unexpected, things we didn't expect to see before. But of course, when he says new worlds, the first thing that's going to jump into his audience's mind is, of course, the discovery of America. It's a very imaginative, imaginary portrait of Columbus landing in America, um, raising the cross. You can see the indigenous people are hugely grateful, can't wait to shower him with gifts. Although, if you look closely, you can see one or two of them are thinking, I have a bad feeling about this. It's not going to work out very well, and they're very sensibly running away. Um, and again, thinking about that language of colonization and imperialism, which is part of the way that gardens are described, the analogy between the state and its power and the gardener's power, the gardener being the kind of king of his own garden, you can see the language of imperialism and conquest and the language of science are very tightly linked at this period. But whatever the reality of the conquest of America, and of course it wasn't a rediscovery of America, it was a rediscovery of America rather than a discovery because the Vikings had got there centuries earlier, but that had all been forgotten. When Columbus got there, and when news of his discovery reaches Europe, it is a considerable intellectual shock, and rhetorically, at least, it comes to stand for a very important point. America isn't mentioned in the Bible, and it isn't mentioned by Aristotle, and it isn't mentioned by any of the classical authors. So it becomes a great rhetorical tool with which to say to the people who've still got their noses in the books, look, everything that we need to know isn't in old books. We have to actually go out in the world and look for new knowledge, because here's this whole new world, new plants, new animals, new people. Are these people descended from Adam and Eve even? Becomes a serious theological question at the time. Nobody knew they were there. Nobody in Europe knew they were there. Uh, so we can't just trust the old books. So it becomes a, a very useful and very important, as I said, rhetorical tool. Now, if we come back to Spratt and his history of the Royal Society in this frontispiece, um, the gentleman on the right here is identified by the caption at the bottom as Artium Instaurator, the renewer of the arts. Arts in this context means not so much painting and dancing, but more the useful arts, the work of artisans, crafts, and what we would now call technologies which have been renewed by this man. Who was he? Well, he was Francis Bacon. And Francis Bacon inspired the Royal Society. He was long dead by the time it's founded, but he's there on the title page because his ideas are one of the things that they hope to bring to life, to make a reality of the projects that he has described. Enormously influential in his day, and you can see there Lord Chancellor of England, the most senior judge in the country, Viscount St Albans, Baron Verulam, and so on. He spends a lot of time trying to persuade first Elizabeth I and then James I that they really want to finance this new experimental philosophy that he's so excited about, the thing that we would now call science. He doesn't do very well with that. Uh, they really can't get them interested in parting with any money. So he contents himself with writing a long series of books which lay out his projects and plans and proposals and try to persuade the princes that they really ought to be doing this. So this one is the, the Novum Organum, the new instrumental method. This is a direct uh, kind of response to Aristotle's Organon, the instrument, as it was called, Aristotle's logic. Bacon is saying, we need a new one. We've got to reconstruct the whole of ancient knowledge on a new foundation, a foundation of experiment and observation, of empirical evidence. We've got to see things for ourselves. We've got to try things for ourselves. You can, I hope, begin to see why the gentlemen of the Royal Society think he is their patron saint. 
He famously claimed, ipsa scientia potestas est, knowledge itself is power. Uh, that is normally abbreviated simply as scientia potentia est, knowledge is power. Uh, rather nicely, that version is never found in Bacon's writing. That occurs in the writings of his secretary, a certain Thomas Hobbes, a man with a considerable interest in power. Um, but that notion that knowledge of power is, of course, that's the sales pitch. This is why you, the prince, might want to fund this new experimental knowledge, because I'm going to put more power in your hands. And again, there's that link uh, to the kind of imperial project, the notion of colonization, extending the power of the realm. And the whole point of this is to find new knowledge. Uh, as he writes, the discovery of things is to be taken from the light of nature, not recovered from the shadows of antiquity. And this frontispiece, which reappears in various forms in several of his books, encapsulates that goal. The pillars here are the pillars of Hercules, one of the wonders of the ancient world, which stood roughly where the Straits of Gibraltar are. And they symbolically divide the known world, the Mediterranean world, the world that the Greeks and the Romans, the classical authors knew, from the unknown, from the Atlantic, and of course, from the whole continent of America, which nobody knew was there. And the exciting possibility is that we might set sail through those pillars out into the unknown and find things as extraordinary, as wonderful, and as unexpected as America. And the slogan that he's got here is a quote from the book of Daniel, multipatransibut ed augbitor scientia, many will go to and fro and knowledge will be increased. And that notion of increasing knowledge, not just recovering ancient knowledge, is one of the things that drives the whole Baconian project. And one of the people, the groups of people he thinks are particularly important to this project are artisans and craftsmen, the kind of people who make and operate Boyle's air pump for him. He argues that they have made many very important discoveries which are actually transforming the world. And his three favorite examples are the magnetic compass, which allows you to sail out of sight of land and to navigate uh, when, there, when it's cloudy and you can't see the sun to steer by. The magnetic compass tells you where you're going. No uh, you know, great figure in philosophy was responsible for this. Various artisans uh, perfected ancient knowledge of lodestones and so on to produce the modern, as it was in the 17th century, magnetic compass. Another example is printing from movable metal type. We associate it always, of course, with the name of Gutenberg. Gutenberg is a goldsmith. Uh, he's not a philosopher. Um, he is a practical man who has perfected, what he actually perfects is a technique for making moulds that allow you to cast type where every piece will be the same depth. Sorry, in a previous life I was a typography nerd, but we'll try not to let me get carried away with that too much. The point about printing from movable metal life, type is that it makes a lot of books, and it makes a lot of books all the same, and, and it makes them cheap. And so this new knowledge that we've discovered from exploring and from using our senses and so on can be disseminated and it can be reproduced without scribes or other copyists introducing mistakes. Because it doesn't help if there are mistakes in the printed book. One of my favorite examples of this, there's an early edition of the Bible where they uh, left a key word out of one of the commandments. So it actually says, thou shalt commit adultery. Um, and if you ever pick up a copy with that, buy it. Okay, it's called the Wicked Bible. It's worth a fortune. Um, but in theory, movable metal type lets you reproduce useful and accurate knowledge accurately. And the other one, of course, is gunpowder. And what else would you want to sell your prints on but the notion of new power, new kinds of weapons, weapons that are literally going to demolish the feudal order uh, as they blow castles down and so on. And what Bacon says is all this progress, these extraordinary inventions have been made piecemeal, haphazardly, by relatively untrained artisans. Just imagine what we could do if we did this kind of thing systematically. 
If we actually uh, trained and employed people in large groups to work away at specific projects under royal direction, anything is possible. That's the pitch. Um, and if we come back to Boyle and the experimental philosophy, uh, of course, this is a printed book. That's one of the things that's important about it. But again, it ties in very closely to the kind of claims that Bacon is making because uh, the key thing here is the notion of public knowledge, repeatable knowledge. The Royal Society conducts experiments. People can come along and see for themselves. If you can't get there, you can read about it afterwards uh, uh, in print, uh, and you can rely on the testimony of those various respectable gentlemen who were present uh, and who were so honorable that you wouldn't dare dispute their account of it and so on. But the idea of public knowledge being a common good is one of the things they're promoting. And one of Boyle's great kind of intellectual enemies are the alchemists, secretive uh, liars who keep knowledge to themselves in the hope of making a profit from it and uh, sell you all kinds of nonsense under the guise of occult knowledge. That's the opposite of science in Boyle's view. Public knowledge is the best thing. And that notion of science in public is one that's going to carry on long after the 17th century. It's a very famous painting. I'm sure many of you recognize it, Experiments on an Air Pump. And there are a couple of things here that I want to point out to you. In the middle of the picture, obviously, we have the natural philosopher looking, I think, a little bit Faust-like, rather like a, a sorcerer, a figure of power and authority, um, uh, a rather awe-inspiring figure. Fashionable ladies and gentlemen, this is an 18th century picture, are enjoying the demonstration. You may just about be able to make out in the shadows over here uh, one of the artisans who's actually operating the equipment, who are known... Uh, rather appropriately in this lighting as invisible technicians uh, to the history of science. They're the people who actually make all this stuff work, but Boyle's name is on the title page. But one of the things that I think is really interesting is the little group here. This is an experiment with a bird, and it's a very famous experiment where the philosopher would basically take a candle, put it in the pump, pump out the air, the candle goes out. He then puts a bird in the thing, pumps out the air, the bird dies. Respiration and combustion are the same in some important sense. There's something in the air that supports both of them. It doesn't have a name yet at this point, but it's a very important experiment. But of course, it's not new. He knows exactly what's going to happen. He's demonstrating. He's not experimenting. And you can see the little girl here, and I think her mother, are not at all happy about what is going to happen to the bird. Meanwhile, their pompous paterfamilias here is mansplaining air pumps to them without any concern for them. Doesn't remind me of myself at all. Um, <laughs> And I think there is something subtle about that image which also tells us something about the gender dimensions of scientific knowledge. Right from its origins, it's always very much conceived in terms of male power, the authority of the natural philosopher, the man of power over nature and, and over women. And of course, it's no coincidence that in uh, the kinds of traditions that Bacon and these people are coming from, we often talk about mother nature. Nature is often gendered as feminine, uh, and many people have argued, I think with some good reason, that science itself is a kind of gendered violence. It certainly can seem like that at times. We still talk about things like the rape of Mother Nature when we think about damage to the environment. And that's a set of images that has a very ancient tradition, which can also be traced back uh, to Bacon. This is Joseph Wright uh, painting, as I'm sure you recognize it's in the National Gallery. If you haven't seen it, it's really worth the trip. So, let me turn to... Bacon's New Atlantis, to a utopian project uh, in a bit more detail that brings out a bit more clearly some of the connections that I've been trying to make. 
He never finished writing this. Uh, it was actually found among his unfinished papers. He wrote like a demon all his life, produced an extraordinary number of lectures uh, on all kinds of subjects, books and so on. Uh, this was printed as an appendix to a book called The Silver Silvarum, a huge 10 volume work on natural history. And as I say, it came, uh, it came out after he was already dead. But I suspect he would never have finished it, however long he'd uh, worked on it, because he'd really said what he wanted to say in the fragment um, that survives. It is um, a utopian story, um, and it is modelled, of course, on the first utopia, uh, Sir Thomas More's book of that title, uh, Latin in 1516, English in 1551, so not that much earlier. Um, and, and as I'm sure you know, Utopia, the name which more coins is in fact a pun in Greek, depending on how you, it sounds the same, but depending on how you spell it, it either means good place or it means no place. And there's a paradoxical quality to the Utopia, it is the perfect place, but it's the place that cannot or does not or perhaps should not exist in reality. Um, and that ambiguity is part of the uh, utopian tradition which I'm going to be picking up over the course of the lectures. Um, it's interesting that Moore says man's nature is mutable and frail. We are not capable of uh, organising a better world. Uh, we need um, God or ideally a good king appointed by God to cultivate us like unruly weeds in a garden. And he makes that analogy that we've seen already very clearly the garden uh, is the kingdom, the gardener is um, the king, he is appointed by God to bring order uh, and to improve us, to make us better people than we would be able to be if we were left to untrammeled nature. And I think it's really interesting just to look at the dates. The very first botanic gardens in Europe date from 1544-45. Um, the, the Medici's found a couple of them around that time in Italy. So they're really very contemporary, and I'm very grateful, my friend Anna Svensson was, pointed this out to me, um, that utopianism and the botanic gardens come into the world at the same time. If we come back to New Atlantis, it has a very classical sort of utopian form. This is already familiar genre by this time. Uh, it's a traveller's tale. The travellers are shipwrecked on a, they find this lost island completely cut off from the rest of the world somewhere near America, which is not coincidental, of course. Um, uh, and it's called Ben Salem, and they're fascinated by all the things they find, and there's lengthy uh, discussions about the, um, the nature of the society and how it's governed and so on. The only thing I'm going to talk about today, because I think it's the only thing Bacon was really interested in, is that it has an institution called Solomon's House. And this is the first description of a research, a specialised research institute uh, ever, as far as anybody knows. Um, so the father of Solomon's house explains to the travellers uh, what the point of it is. The end of our foundation, that is to say its goal, is the knowledge of causes and secret motions of things and the enlarging of the bounds of human empire to the effecting of all things possible. Human empire Again, that language of colonisation. And the picture here illustrates some of the wonders. So you can maybe just make out here there's a submarine, somebody at the top is flying, fires are burning in water, there's all kinds of marvels here. I've seen this picture often, and I thought for today I really should do some research and find out where it's from, uh, which beautiful 17th century edition of the book it's actually been taken from. So I did some careful research um, and I found it. It's from 1970s book on computer graphics, so <laughs> I was a bit surprised <laughs> by that. But as my talk is all about the connections between this ancient tradition and the modern times, I felt I was going to keep the picture anyway, because uh, it is kind of great. And there actually are no contemporary illustrations of the New Atlantis that I've been able to find. Um, 
The father of the house explains to the travellers, this is one of the drawbacks to the utopias as a genre, I have to say, when you read them, there's always uh, some elderly person, usually in a flowing robe, who pontificates ad nauseam about the drains and the laws and the religious rites and all the rest of it. But um, I'll give you just a few highlights. We have also large and various orchards and gardens. In these, we practice likewise all conclusions of grafting and inoculating, as well of wild trees as fruit trees, which produceth many effects. And this, I hope, is going to be ringing a vague bell, because this is exactly the kind of thing that Sharrock is talking about in his book, grafting, inoculation, improving trees by grafting one bit onto another. The father goes on, we make by art, that's that art-nature distinction again, in the same orchards and gardens, trees and flowers to come earlier or later than their seasons, and to come up and bear more speedily than by their natural course they do. So we take nature and improve it by art, by human artifice, and we make things flower before they're really ready to. And it's interesting that Sharrock again writes on this subject, the acceleration and retardation of plants in respect to their germination and maturity, and he quotes the Lord Verulam, Bacon, has an authority on this subject. Bacon argued that accelerating the germination and maturation of plants was one of the magnalia naturae, the wonders of nature, to be able to actually do this to plants, to force them out of their natural course, to serve our needs more readily. And Sharrock has experimented, as we saw with milk and muck water, to try these various techniques to see what can be done in this area. And he agrees it is an operation that all artists can do something in. It's interesting, artist rather than scientist uh, still at this point. Um, but he added, I know not any that arrive at the performance of those grand proposals of some writers as that of raising salads within an hour or two whilst a joint of mutton is roasting. So you get that sceptical note. We're not going to believe everything we read in the books. Let's try it. This one, he thinks, a little implausible, even though apparently the late King of France was able to do it. Um, it's interesting, we go back to Bacon again. The father says that he's of the fruits and vegetables. We make them by art greater much than their nature, and their fruit greater and sweeter, and of differing taste, smell, colour, and figure from their nature. So as we perfect our art, as we work more, we take things further and further away from their natural origins and twist them more and more to suit human uh, ideas of what they should be. And if we enlarge just one detail from that picture, you can see the gardens there. Strawberries, so big, you have to cart them around in a wheelbarrow. And that dream, Bacon's dream, of a scientific garden, an experimental garden, that will take nature and improve it to suit human needs and human tastes, is something that I think runs right through from this period up to the present day. Uh, it's something that we keep finding, uh, and we'll keep finding them over the next few lectures. It is perhaps a new Garden of Eden. And I think one of the reasons that the Botanic Garden comes into existence and these utopian dreams come into existence at this time is precisely because of the magnetic compass and the way that Europeans are traveling and exploring uh, and reaching the tropical world and discovering how many things grow there. And in a few minds, and Bacon's is one of them, they begin to think, well, all the products of nature were there in the Garden of Eden. And then, because Adam and Eve sinned, they were scattered across the world. And if we could find them all, and we could bring them all to Oxford and grow them in the Botanic Gardens, we would have recreated Eden. And that idea of recreating the lost knowledge of Adam and Eve through experiment, through travel, uh, through applying your mind, um, is something that runs through a lot of Bacon's projects. One of the projects that the founders of the Solomon's House have is that they will conquer disease, people will live forever. 
and the Bible tells us that Adam and Eve and their ancestors lived much, much longer than modern people do. Short modern lifestyles are a product of the fall, of sin, of the destruction of the order that was there at the beginning. Maybe we'll get back to those long lifespans if we could just put Eden back together again using science. And in the second edition he wrote, even in the ways of propagation that are most artificial, there is more of nature than art. Industry and art may bring materials and place them fitly for it, but nature works them. So he's hedging his bets, uh, and we'll see that going on right the way through this story. Uh, how much is art? How much is nature? What's the correct relationship between the two? How much do we let nature have its course? To what extent do we interfere and change it? He concluded that it is the great art of man to find out the arts of nature. Rather a paradoxical um, image, I think. So what I've tried to do is connect the Oxford Botanic Gardens, this beautiful geometrical image of order, a divine and a natural order, a royal order, uh, but also uh, with the notion of the new Atlantis, the idea of a garden of experiment, a garden of research where we can make nature bigger, better, greater, juicier than it was before. Sharrock's history of vegetables is the direct link between these, but it is also, of course, standing in here for the whole scientific revolution, that whole notion that there are new and better ways to gain knowledge. And Bacon's dream, the giant strawberry in the wheelbarrow, uh, is one of the things that's going to come out of that tradition and is going to echo down the years uh, from the 17th century right up to the present. Um, and I'm going to give you just a quick kind of overview of what happens to that idea afterwards, just to give you a sense of where we're going to go in the next few lectures. So one of the ways people try to bring Bacon's dream to fruition um, is acclimatization. Take a valuable crop from one place in the world and bring it to your own country and grow it there. One of the great exponents of this is Carl von Linne, Linnaeus, as he's better known, 18th century Swedish naturalist. He was worried that Sweden was bankrupting itself by importing all these foreign luxuries. So he gets hold of rice and coffee and sugar, sugarcane, ginger, olive trees, and he tries growing them in Sweden. And guess what? They all died. Um, <laughs> but that didn't stop him. He actually wrote, should coconuts chance to come into my hands, it would be as if fried birds of paradise flew into my throat when I opened my mouth. And if that isn't an image of utopia, I don't know what is. Um, as well as that acclimatization project, there's the project of transplantation. This, of course, is the Royal Botanic Gardens at Kew. Um, and we're familiar with the beautiful greenhouses and lovely flowers and so on. But in a secret bunker under the Banks building, there are some weird and wonderful things, such as examples of New Zealand flax. This one is sent from New Zealand to the Great Exhibition um, uh, as a possible uh, uh, source of a new industry for New, New Zealand. This is India rubber from India, collected by somebody called Joseph Dalton Hooker, and by the merest coincidence I happen to have written a book about and we'll be talking about next time. Um, and this is a huge brick of tea from India, hugely important. It's worth remembering that most of the crops that Britain's imperial wealth are built on, most of that wealth comes directly from plants. So finding new plants and getting them to grow in British colonies, where indigenous people can be paid next to nothing to grow them very profitably, is a key part of what Kew is actually doing in the 19th century. I would also just mention in passing that they also have a huge brick of opium that Hooker collected, and for some reason they wouldn't give me a picture of that. Um, now, if we bring the story up to the present, of course, one of the people we're going to be thinking about is Gregor Mendel here, who, as we all know, is a simple, uneducated Austrian monk. He grows peas in his garden. He accidentally discovers the laws of genetics, and here is a picture of him. This is actually from the, the textbook from which I was taught undergraduate uh, biology. Um, and, of course, he was so far ahead of his time that nobody understood what he was saying, uh, and his work was forgotten. 
Okay, great story, absolute nonsense from beginning to end, all right? He is actually a very highly educated German-speaking Moravian. He's not Austrian, he's a friar, not a monk. Uh, he actually went to the University of Vienna and studied the most advanced physics and statistics of the time, so that the simple, humble peasant is a complete myth as well. What he's actually doing is trying to achieve Bacon's dream of making new plants by hybridizing things and creating new varieties that are gonna remain stable instead of reverting to type. Um, and while his work wasn't, uh, obviously didn't make the impact he would have liked, it was actually read and cited a little bit before 1900. 1900, however, is when it's rediscovered, and that launches what we're now going to be called genetics. Now, if by any chance you've heard of this man, and you get the you know, leading nerd award if you have, because most people haven't, Hugo de Vries is remembered, if he's remembered at all, for having been one of the people who rediscovers Mendel's work in 1900. If de Vries was around, he would be very fed up uh, that that's the only reason he's remembered, because what he would have wanted to be remembered for was the mutations theory, the mutation theory, which for a brief period at the beginning of the 20th century is much more exciting to many more people than Mendel's work actually is. And it involved experimental gardens, growing these plants under carefully controlled conditions. He's got little paper bags over them so they don't accidentally cross-pollinate each other and so on. I'll be coming back to him. But he, his work directly inspires the building of some of the first, uh, what we would think of as modern experimental gardens. This one is the Station for Experimental Evolution at Cold Spring Harbor. Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory is still the leading genetics research institute, as you probably know. It's opened in 1904. This is Charles Davenport, its first director. And at the opening, he waves Dimitassian's theory at the crowd and says, this is the most important book since The Origin of Species. Um, this is the book that's going to allow us not merely to understand evolution, but to control it, to actually do experimental evolution and actually make Bacon's dream come true. He actually says the dream of Bacon is coming true at the opening of it. So we'll come back to him and what he does. And of course, that takes us on a direct link up to the present. These are genetically modified soybeans being grown at a modern American university. This is the University of Wisconsin-Madison. The whole innovation center, crop innovation center, was donated by Monsanto, uh, now owned by Bayer. Um, I think they feel that maybe the Monsanto <coughs> trademark wasn't such a big asset anymore, so they've retired it. Um, and I will just leave you um, with that image and with a final thought, which is that goes back to the notion of utopia as a very ambiguous idea. So for many of the people who do this kind of research, of course, this is making Bacon's dream come true. We're going to make new plants, we're going to feed the world, we're going to invent crop plants that will solve global warming, all kinds of things are being promised by the genetic engineers. But if utopia teaches us anything, it's that one person's utopia is another person's dystopia. These are protesters uh, uh, protesting about Harvard University's involvement with uh, the genetically modified crop industry and so on. And of course, with Extinction Rebellion out in the streets of London this evening, it's a reminder, a very timely reminder, that uh, Bacon's dream has been resisted in various ways at various times for some of the reasons that I've tried to <coughs> outline. Okay, thank you all very much for listening. <laughs>